Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your Hush country. Hush up, boy. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Boom, these explosions of bullshit. You're going to be the next president of the United States. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the inaugural episode of Vipodison. Here at Vipodison, we have a very clear mission. While most people seem to be desperate to find compromise in political debates, here at Vipodison, we want to have hard conversations where we disagree productively, of course. We want to get to the heart of the matters we're discussing, to make good arguments and better counter arguments, and to learn a little something about ourselves and each other along the way. While we definitely can't promise to dissolve the partisan divide, we hope our discourse and probably not so much witty humor can help you better understand both sides of the issue. With that, hello everybody. I'm Alex Freelander, your five foot eight on a good day co-host hailing proudly from New Orleans, Louisiana. And I'm Kristen O'Donohue, five two and a half on a bad day, hailing even more proudly from New York City. So Alex, give us more. The people want to know, who are you? You know, Kristen, I'm really glad you asked. I'm a pretty complicated guy. I'm a third year studying <laughs> econ and Spanish. Don't ask me about the correlation. I don't want to expand upon it. Um, outside the classroom, I like running, working out, and being incredibly generic. <laughs> and what about you, Kristen? What brings you here? I'm a fourth year here at UVA, majoring in thought, mostly political and social thought, uh, to be specific, and history. And I too like to run, mostly in the woods, and I lead a policy advocacy group here called SERVE, Students for Equity and Reform. So as you can tell, we come from completely different backgrounds, um, upbringings, so we're the perfect co-host pair. Um, but I, I will say we're both diehard 1975 fans, so uh, well, we have some common ground, I think. Isn't she so sentimental? So we'll be coming out with a new episode of this podcast every week. Episodes alternating between national news and then issues experienced here on grounds. So Alex and I have the pleasure of criticizing the university to our heart's content or just delving into what issues are occupying students' minds um, and lives. So we'll bring on a guest. We'll have some wisdom to share and we'll mildly interrogate them for about 20 minutes. And then we'll unpack it together. Yeah, emphasis on mildly. We are, you know, not not trying to draw anybody too hard, but huh? we're not the best at that uh, word. Anyways, each week we'll tackle a new issue, and we thought, really just to make our seventh grade history professor proud, Mr. Smith, I miss you if you're listening to this, oh. we'd kick things off with the First Amendment and talk about free speech on college campuses. So free speech has been a consistently hot topic throughout our time at UVA. Um, I think especially since the Mike Pence episode of 2022. So just to remind our listeners of what happened there, a conservative student group, the Young Americans for Freedom, yeah, for short, invited the former vice president to speak to a crowd at UVA in April of 2022. And the student body had mixed reactions to the invitation. The Cab Daily published an op-ed declaring that Pence's speech constituted hate speech and thus the university should deny him a platform. A group of concerned faculty wrote a letter objecting to the editorial board's take, and they argued that equating Pence's remarks with hate speech that, quote, threatens the well-being of students on grounds was wrong and misleading. Um, so the debates around free speech at the university gained national attention. A student here at UVA published an op-ed in the New York Times uh, discussing the suppression of conservative uh, viewpoints and 
quote, alternative viewpoints. Um, and there was a ton of Twitter, a ton of Twitter commentary uh, at the time. And I think students since have been a little reluctant um, to discuss openly this topic of free speech. At the time, I think the reaction to Pence was, it was complicated. I don't think it constituted hate speech. Um, and that, that was sort of the sentiment of the concerned faculty. I think it's really important to define the terms of hate speech. Yes, Pence is, as vice president, I, I disagreed with his policies and the policies of his administration entirely um, and most of his takes on social issues. But I think it was unproductive to argue that the university should bar him. Legally, they're not even able to do that. Um, it didn't make sense. And I think it sort of stunted what could have been a really productive debate about um, who we did want to bring to the university to speak. And um, so, yeah, that's sort of what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, to further elaborate on that, Kristen, I think one of the most interesting parts of having Mike Pence here is how conservative his views really are. I think problems of free speech are most prominent when we enter this gray area of what is hate speech and what is a very strong political opinion. And I think a lot of what Pence has said historically has fallen right there. If we had somebody condoning or condemning, pardon me, human, human life, I don't think anybody would want to see him there. But Pence's comments really fall in this gray area where a lot of the time a liberal person would say that is hate speech. You are talking against somebody for their person, for instance, with his talk of conversion therapy. Mm -hmm. But then a very conservative point of view would say, no, that's his opinion. And we are entitled to talk about that. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. I think for the fact of him being the president of the United States, it's not somebody a, a public university would stop from speaking. I think more productively, and hopefully what we get into later in this episode, is that people should spend more time listening and hearing what he has to say, mm -hmm. and not just calling it hate speech immediately. For one point, we don't even know what he's going to say. From that point, um, I'd like to transition into another piece of research we have for the podcast. Um, we are focusing on a study called the FIRE Ranking. Um, it's a mouthful, but it stands for the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. The system, the study is a bit complicated, but in layman's terms, it's essentially schools get more points for surveyed students saying they feel comfortable speaking, and they get extra points if the university itself has administered actual policy and allowed people to come speak that would help further foster free speech and show differing opinions. So from here, I'll talk a little about the survey and then Chris and I will discuss a bit more. Um, props to UVA, good job us. We were in the top 10 for best universities promoting free speech. More so on that, we were the only university with a heavy liberal lean to our student body. This isn't to say that the other universities were strongly conservative. The other nine in the top 10 were more so relatively even, which makes intuitive sense. If there's no strong political major majority at a school, then people are going to feel more comfortable sharing their opinions. 
But as we promise to do on this podcast, we will critique our lovely university. So what did UVA do poorly? Um, surprisingly, the biggest criticism students in the survey had toward UVA as a whole was their comfort sharing ideas among peers, which I find incredibly interesting because I don't know about you, but Kristen, but I grew up in a school where the classic argument was, my teacher is so liberal. I keep getting C's on my English class because I don't conform to their ideas. Yeah, same and for it, me. You need to leave. Yeah, I mean, especially in New York. And it's like, no, Timmy, you just don't know how to spell. <laughs> Anyways, um, it's not that case at all at UVA. Um, where UVA does best is in their administration, tolerance for speakers, enacting actual policy to help foster free speech and students' level of comfort speaking with their professors themselves. Mm -hmm. So in this case, we have this interesting dynamic where it isn't the faculty that's causing people to be afraid to speak, it's the student body. And just before I let you talk, because I feel I've been talking for about a million years, um, I would like to say a few things. And first off, bring in a quote, which I found really interesting directly from the study. Um, I'm quoting here, a girl was questioning evidence of a specific organization being racist in a group chat and was destroyed by the group. Anyone who defended her was also destroyed, end quote. So this quote to me sort of highlights the essence of the problem of freedom of speech. It's this idea that many of us are familiar with of cancel culture. For those who are unfamiliar, it's basically this worry in society that if you say something offensive, you could have your peers as a whole group up on you and sort of tarnish your reputation or limit your job opportunities in the future. So there's this growing sentiment, I'd say, especially in the younger generation around playing it safe and saying the right thing to not get canceled. I think that's a very common phrase you'll see on social media, don't get canceled. Mm -hmm. um, it's very prevalent in our society. The last thing I want to say about it is there's this sort of idea that is, is it um, the person putting it on themselves that they're going to be canceled and it's like the pressure from their peers is not as prevalent as they think it is? Or is it in fact the peers are putting the pressure and we should be critiquing them rather than the person who feels afraid to talk? Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think... Personally, I haven't been in a classroom where I felt like the professor was, would be making it difficult for conservatives to speak up. I'm often in the more liberal majority, I think. And I think the real question becomes, is it okay for you to say something that really questions um, my dignity? And we'll talk about this more probably with Professor Alexander, but I think the idea of canceling an individual as a person is really poisonous and to normalize that in society and on a college campus where you know people are not fully formed um, intellectually, morally, uh, and are learning, that's a really dangerous idea. None of us would want to be canceled for slipping. I think it would be best if we could promote a language of tolerance and um, shared dignity, but I think there is such extreme polarization right now, which I know is, is overused term, but calcification too, where you have people so deeply entrenched in their beliefs 
um, perspectives they've long held and don't want to be questioned on, that they react very strongly to being told that they're not permitted to share their perspective um, because it denies someone else's dignity. Um, so I think that's very real. I hope that through this podcast we can sort of have conversations that attempt to, to break that barrier and get us out of our, our own shells and perspectives and um, shields that we've sort of put up for ourselves. But yeah, let's, let's bring on a faculty member to, to share their perspective. So today we're going to hear from Professor Gerard Alexander, who happened to be one of the concerned faculty members who wrote in response to the Cab Daily op-ed that I mentioned earlier. Professor Alexander has taught at UVA since 1997, and he's a specialist in comparative politics, especially in Western Europe. He's a president, he is president of the Blue Ridge Center, which is a new group here on grounds and defines itself as a collaboration between concerned students, faculty, alumni, and other members of the Charlottesville community who love UVA and want to see it be the best it can be. They host events and reading groups to promote viewpoint diversity and open discourse at the university. Sounds like this guy's pretty concerned with all the issues. I think he could give some good opinions. He's concerned. I'm excited to hear from him. Let's see what he has to offer. All right, Professor Alexander, thank you so much for joining us on Bipartisan. Uh, today we're basically just going to run through some questions regarding free speech and hope to have a somewhat productive conversation about the topic. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So we have one question just to kick things off. If you could invite any speaker, non-academic, preferably to come speak at Grounds, who would it be? Dead or alive? I have no idea. What a great question. Um, that's the kind of thing a person who invites people to campus probably ought to have thought about. But I never have. For one thing, I don't have the budget for it, especially if they're dead, and even if they're just merely super ridiculously famous. Um, I don't know. I mean, my big habit is to invite speakers to grounds who don't charge speakers fees. Okay. So they don't cost me anything. Sometimes a little bit of travel, sometimes not even that. And to be honest, I'd rather have more voices than one. I guess I'm not enough of a hero worshiper to believe that there's one voice with such insight, such clarity, such something that it would be transformative. I guess I just don't believe that. It's kind of sad. I don't. I, I, I need. I need an intellectual hero. I guess I, they don't have to be an intellectual. Like Alex's answer yeah, is yeah. Jim Carrey. Is who? Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey, the actor. Yes. Yeah. So if that Can you imagine trying to cram him into a 15-minute podcast? Oh, we don't need him for a podcast. We're, yeah. we're, we're talking no, the whole of the Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Um, yeah, there are a lot of neat characters. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, what would he say about most things? Does Jim Has he pronounced enough on politics to be really interesting on that score? Well, sort of the premise of our question, um, that we're, this is your one break from talking about free speech. Um, yeah. oh, we're just okay. kind of trying so, to get to know oh, yeah, you. I didn't, take, I, I didn't take much advantage of it, did I? No. Yeah, so it, just literally if there's anybody who you're fascinated with, anybody who has sparked your interest, um, who um, you'd love to hear talk. Let me put it this way. Um, biographies are my favorite form of pleasure reading. Uh, there are all kinds of great characters um, in history, in business, in intellectual things, military, and political history, and artistic. I just bought a new big biography of Marc Chagall, the painter. Um, I mean, there are tons of people I would really wish I had been able to speak to or... Um, I'd love to be able to talk to Steve Jobs. All right, so I, if I had to pick one living person today, Elon Musk. 
Right. And why is that? That's, that is a great answer. You know, I mean, he's obviously extremely complicated. He's obviously very eccentric, very self-indulgent. He's also, you know, a visionary. I mean, he's an engineer. All of his companies are major either computer science engineering or engineering, you know, hard uh, object engineering projects. He's an astonishingly good businessman, even if it doesn't seem like that on any given day. Um, you don't get to be the wealthiest man on the face of the earth and in history by, you know, being the idiot that a lot of people are calling him. I don't know quite, either they're missing something or I'm missing something. Um, and he's an extremely original thinker. Now, mind you, that doesn't mean that people like that are always great speakers or great interviews. Um, there are lots of really brilliant people who, they're not necessarily linear thinkers. They're not necessarily coherent thinkers. I know a lot of very smart people, people way smarter than me who think in bursts and they think in sort of packets. Mm -hmm. But if you ask them to give a speech for 20 minutes, it would be completely disorganized. So you have to kind of pick your, you, you'd have to go into it with your eyes wide open. Mm -hmm. yeah. totally I, I'm always amazed at how many people are not good storytellers. They don't think about the beginning and the middle and the end, mm -hmm. and they don't think about suspense, and they don't think about their audience's attention spans. And if those are things that you get good at and you help your interviewees get good at, you have, it's a real gift. You're doing a great service because a lot of the world needs stories and we're not all great at telling them. Yeah, very well said. Um, with that answer, I guess we'll be moving into the meat of today's segment and now begin our conversation on free speech. Um, so first off, we wanted to ask you, conservatives around the country are ringing alarm bells about the suppression of conservative thought on college campuses. Is such concern justified? Uh, it depends what you mean by suppression. There are lots of viewpoints that are, I think, neglected is the bigger problem than suppressed. And let me explain about it. And, and there is some suppression. I'd have to define what I mean by it because it was easily exaggerated. But let me explain what I mean. I think the biggest problem is just how many alternative mindsets, readings, theories are just absent. Um, from college campuses and college education. And that's more a product of who makes up the faculty than anything else. I have a lot, as a professor at the University of Virginia, I have a lot of brilliant colleagues. A lot are more well-read than I am. A lot of them have more original thoughts than I do. A lot of them are more thoughtful and articulate and deeper thinkers than I am. But they do tend to dramatically over-represent the viewpoints of some segments of American society and certain segments of American intellectual life. and that leaves certain other ones dramatically underrepresented. And you might not think that's a problem. And if they're teaching, I don't know, plant biology, it might not be a problem. Mm -hmm. But if you're teaching in the humanities and social sciences, if you're teaching history and literature and political science and sociology, it can be a problem, um, including not even for the, you know, sort of insidious reason that they despise conservative thought or books or writers and want to ban them from their syllabuses, but more often because what they teach courses on is what they find interesting and the debates they want to have and that they want to find writers on different sides of are the things they find interesting and compelling. And I think the bigger danger is just that certain things get neglected completely. Um, last fall, I taught a reading group, um, not for credit, to a bunch of students. I led a reading group. Um, it's part of my project here on uh, at UVA um, on Thomas Sowell, the public intellectual and economic, economic uh, historian and intellectual historian and social theorist 
who has got to have one of the greatest gaps in America between their standing as a very esteemed, very prolific public intellectual and their complete, uh, virtually complete absence on university syllabi. Why is that? And as students who took that reading group with me understood that, as one of them put it, there was something vaguely subversive about reading Sowell. Well, that's just weird. Sowell is a perfectly mainstream thinker, but he does have takes on certain debates that are not appreciated in the current climate. And so they're just ignored or neglected. They're just not present, right? That's, I think, the biggest problem. And then a much smaller one is there are views that are quote unquote suppressed in the sense that claiming those ideas or values is kind of discouraged that um, we know conservative and frankly also centrist and frankly even moderate liberal students report in surveys that they often self-censor. They know that there are certain views um, that just they just are going to bring you grief from some activists, from some very loud voices if you articulate them, and so they just don't. Um, the president of a university told me recently with some chagrin that his own kids had said to him when he raised a couple of subjects, like, no, 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 we don't talk about that. No, 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 we don't. Hmm. And he was just like, what do you mean we don't talk about that? And the answer is they've just learned in their peer circles that it's just thankless to, you're going to have some really loud voice and why it's this, that, or the other for you to even voice mm-hmm. an opinion that differs from their own by a tiny bit. And so they just don't bring it up. And there's a lot of that. Is that something you've sensed in the classroom as a professor, that certain... I don't, but I think I know a lot of professors who would swear that they don't. And the problem is we don't always know what kind of climate we're creating in our immediate surroundings. Mm -hmm. We don't always realize that. We're authority figures. We have powers of grading over them, of writing recommendation letters. And I have known since I've been in school myself that students on the whole assume that Professors reward if you say back to them what they themselves think on a given topic. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's true. I know it's not true of me. I often give high grades to students who challenge what they suspect or know I think on some topic and do it well because it's really impressive when they have the nerve and the talent to do that. But I hate to argue with that many people. If that many students assume that students get rewarded and punished based on, maybe unconsciously maybe, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Based on what they say and how it conforms to what the professor thinks. I hate to tell them they're all wrong when it may not be true. It may be often be right. So that's a, I, I I think professors ought to be more sensitive to the possibility that self-censorship is going on around them without their realizing it. I have heard faculty, not at UVA, but from other schools, talk about this as a problem and then they'll give examples of certain kinds of things and they're all just all their examples of certain phenomena are politically loaded in one direction and I think to myself you're not even hearing yourself are you you're not even aware of the message you're kind of sending probably without thinking about it I think most of this stuff is totally non-deliberate or unconscious but it happens all the time and we are absolutely a hundred percent of us vulnerable to that if universities were completely staffed by conservative and libertarian professors, this would also be a problem. Interesting. It's a human... Correct. It's a human failing. It's a human propensity. Mm-hmm. And it's just weird that we're not all sensitized to it. Yeah, that's a really great point because that's one of our aforementioned topics, whether it's the fact that it's a liberal majority that's leading to this sort of pressure not to talk, but you saying that... It's not the fact of what side the majority is on. It's just the human nature of having a majority or being in a minority causes yeah. that. Which yeah. is, and what, what's you know the, what really exacerbates it is when you're in a bubble, um, when you're in a environment in which your views are echoed back to you. And I mean, I definitely know. For instance, I myself am pro-choice. Um, 
I travel in mostly and largely conservative intellectual circles that are almost uniformly pro-life. I'm aware all the time of counter arguments. But I know an amazing number of intellectuals and others in all walks of life who are pro-choice who have basically never heard a thoughtful, rights-based pro-life argument. They've never heard it. And when you live and operate in a world in which all your friends, your peers, your alumni friends, if you went to college, your information flows on Twitter and other social media, all kind of share the, a lot of core values with you. It is amazing how ignorant you can be of what others think, of um, how insensitive you can be, how even prone to believing conspiratorial or judgmental things about them that are just completely crazy. I know conservatives whose views of left-wingers are just cartoons, and I know left-wingers whose views of conservatives are just cartoons. Do you think that UVA is a liberal bubble? Um, I think it's a lot better than most campuses. Okay. Um, it's, it's way, way, way above average. And that's partly because it exists in a state that has purple you know, politics and therefore very competitive ones. Um, it's one in which if you were bothered to listen, Governor Youngkin made thoughtful, articulate arguments on the stump to the extent that ever running for office brings out thoughtful, articulate arguments by anybody um, about why certain things ought to be the case in public policy in the Commonwealth of Virginia. And I don't know, in California or New York states that are very, very lopsided, you may not even hear that. In Virginia, you will. In Virginia, a meaningful number of the students are, you know, moderate or moderate conservative. And liberal students are going to be exposed to that in some meaningful way. And I think it's, it's healthy for everybody. And what I really worry about are the really lopsided campuses. And that's where you get, I think, real intolerance. Mm -hmm. When you believe not only that your view is correct, which maybe we all think about our views, but when you believe that your view is so obviously correct that something has to either be, something has to almost be wrong with anyone who believes otherwise, you're in dangerous territory, right? You start to become, you start to feel justified in saying, look, those views are so ignorant or so stupid or so harmful that there really is no benefit to having them around. It really would be better if they were expelled from the public arena. And that's a very dangerous place to be. Mm -hmm. I think much of the language regarding free speech on college campuses cites a need for safe spaces and to create these safe spaces. So do you think that the language of safety and implying that perhaps spaces that permit alternative viewpoints um, to come to the fore are unsafe, what do you think of that, that language? Um, I'm not a fan. On an interview, just there are certain things where you know you can appear a bit disrespectful if you really don't get the argument. Um, I remember a few years ago I was on an interview for a UVA-related a short uh, video, and I was asked about cultural appropriation, and I said, sort of, sorry, I, this is one of those things I, I just don't get it at all. Cultures borrow from each other all the time. It's not they're not appropriating it; they're assimilating parts of it. It's just the way of history. It's the way of the world. I just do not understand what anyone is complaining about. And I, I'm almost tempted to the same to say the same about um, safe spaces. I understand, well, heaven knows I understand what people would mean if they were being threatened literally with violence. That's obviously a, you know, a completely different thing and very disturbing. Um, and I also understand that some people would be made to feel, would be really distressed 
by the public tolerance of really hateful language. And I understand why um, many LGBT Americans have felt that way. I also understand why very Jewish Americans have felt that way in the presence of some protesters in the last week, where what are tantamount to murder calls, you know, sort of publicly tolerated by groups, by large groups sometimes, calls for justifications for murderous civilians seems, you know, to be mainstream, at least among some meaningful, you know, several hundred people at a time. And there's something very distressing about that, very disturbing about that. I'm not, you know, none of us are dumb. We get why that would be upsetting um, and even distressing, which is not a word I take lightly. The question for us always, though, is, you know, so what the alternative is what? To literally make it illegal? What goes, what lies down that road? And I understand that with this, as with so many other things, so many other slippery slope arguments is, well, why can't we just ban calls for murder or justifications for violence or, and I get those, and if they're literally incitements to violence, that's a different matter. But it's, it, I understand it's tempting to say, we're just going to do this little thing. We're just going to restrict certain awful, the awfulest forms of whatever. The problem is, look up five years later. In the UK, for example, they introduced certain you know, basic hate speech laws. And just fast forward five or 10 years, and it is just, it is appalling what people are being arrested for. I mean, just disagreements over what you and I would consider completely mainstream um, disagreements over certain public policy issues. I understand why Germany and Austria, after World War II, banned Nazi-like speech, forming new Nazi parties. I get it. You can totally understand why policymakers in those very specific contexts felt the need to take that step and no other steps. But as a general rule, and I'm not sure I would have voted for them, but I get where they were coming from and I get why it happened there. Everywhere else in all other contexts and in Germany and Austria and everything else, we should as a general rule be willing to, you know, put our big kid pants on, be distressed, and prefer a civil society that sometimes distresses us over a regime in which sooner or later, I promise you, people you will not want to have their hands over your mouth will have the power to censor you. And that's, I think, what we're not always sensitive enough to. I know a lot of young progressives who want to ban hate speech and it never occurs to them that you know, down the road, another President Trump and another Attorney General Jeff Sessions and another Senate Majority Mitch McConnell, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, will be the ones crafting the next chapter of the hate speech laws. And I, I don't think they want to be there for that, but it's the road they're setting out on, and it's inadvisable all around. Yeah, I think that's a super interesting point. Um, I'm always a big fan of the sort of slippery slope argument. Um, now, the problem is not all slopes are slippery, right? So it yeah. can be, it can be exaggerated. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a pattern you can see a lot with politics. I write at UVA for a law article, and that often is a consideration of like Supreme Court justices, where mm -hmm. it's like, well, on its own, this isn't horrible, but you need to think of down the road if you keep up this ideology, like what it could lead to. And I definitely see that yeah. in uh, what you're saying. Let me give one little anecdote. Um, to try to rub this in the rub people's faces in this issue, um, I once went to a, a setting, a conference, where there were a ton of very conservative legal thinkers. And I went around the crowd with a notebook and I asked, if we got into the business of regulating political speech, and they would often cut me off and say, oh, we're never going to do that, or I oppose that, or I would say, I know, I know. If we got into that business as a country, 
Can you think of kinds of speech, specific content, that you could imagine conservative office holders and lawmakers moving to ban if they got into power? I don't think it took a single one of them more than 10 seconds to start thinking of examples. Make it illegal to criticize the police or to question their integrity or ethics or mm -hmm. honor. Um, make it a crime to question America's military or its doings. How many liberal professors do you know who over time have criticized the American Roman, Haiti in this year, Panama in 1904, I'm just going to start making up numbers, uh, Iran in 1953 that the U.S. foreign policy was terrible? All right, make that, you know, it, trust me, a law can be passed that would have the side effect of making a lot of that illegal. Do we really think those are good ideas? And, I mean, it's not just going to be porn and a few other things. It's going to be tons of things. And if one side in the United States gets that power, you really think the other side is going to leave that power just sitting on a table to be used only against them? Not a chance, right? They're going to say, nice sword. When's it my turn to start wielding it and swinging it? Um, so that, I think, is a slippery slope. If you're asking political mm -hmm. movements to restrain themselves, <laughs> that's not a very good starting point for an argument. That's because it's not going to happen. That's not going to be how it ends up happening or unfolding. Sorry, I'm talking to you. Oh, no worries whatsoever. I think we probably have time for about one or two more questions. Yeah, so sorry if you just had to break the fourth wall. Um, <laughs> but alas, um, so we're going to go back to something you wrote in 2018, um, an article titled Liberals, You're Not As Smart As You Think You Are. Um, you, Chris, do, you know that op-ed writers never write their own titles. True. Yeah, never, yeah, ever. <laughs> Chris and I were actually talking about that. We're like, the title doesn't seem to exactly fit with the theme of the article because we both read it and we're very sensible. The, the title's very yeah. like, yeah, clickbaity, exactly. Newspapers and news websites have to sell clicks. And so they, I've had op-eds of mine where they made the opening sentences and paragraph or two a lot more combative than, they, mm -hmm. than, than I ever would, but I had the same, I do some freelance writing and I... And then what's the alternative? You tell them I never want to be published in mainstream, you know, exactly. high prestige magazines. I don't know, or newspapers. I don't have that much uh, willpower. Yeah, fair. <laughs> Well, they are good at their job because we <laughs> definitely did want to read the article. Yeah. Um, See? Yeah, it's fair enough. But nonetheless, um, in it you wrote, and I'm quoting, it's one thing to police your, your own language and a very different one to police other people's. The former can set an example, the latter is domineering, end quote. Has your position on this remained the same, intensified, or changed since you wrote this in 2018? Um, I think it stayed the same. It's always dangerous to dredge up your own words and try to figure out whether you've changed your mind on something. Let me give an example. Um, I often try to use words that are sensitive to some of the things that liberal and pro liberals and progressives have urged us to become more sensitive to. Um, I am prone, for example, to referring to um, unmarried significant others as partners rather than boyfriends or girlfriends or, you know, um, just use a husband-wife language, and I know social conservatives who don't encourage that, and I get that too. And so I, there are ways in which I, you know, I think we do try to set examples with our speech, um, and I could think of other examples. But I mean, I, I, I do think there are times when you can communicate with your choice of words some values or some empathetic relationship to your audience or to parts of it or to people who aren't even in the room who you care about. But... It is another thing to insist that other people use your approved language. And I must admit that if someone tried to do it to me, the first thing I, I, mean, I would be tempted to do just out of irritability would be to start using the terms, even if I don't mean them 
that I know are like sandpaper to them or claws mm -hmm. on the blackboard because not that anyone knows what that means anymore. But just because I am not gonna have somebody's hand in my mouth telling, you know, moving my tongue for me, I'm not gonna be dictated to. So it's just, in, if it offends me that much and I'm not that easily offended a person, just stop and think of the cumulative effect over the last like five or 10 years of American history of a lot of self-appointed language police and tone police out there of all kinds who are, insist on telling other people what words to use. It's just so condescending and so off-putting that one of the themes of that op-ed you referred to was that liberals often do not realize how they are driving people into the opposing coalition because they don't realize how off-putting they can be. And to use the high ground of our culture to wag your finger at other people mm -hmm. It's annoying after a while, to the point where you kind of want to say, oh, so let me get this straight, if I vote for this person, I'm really going to piss off those people who've been talking down to me. Sounds right. interesting. Mm -hmm. But then how do we strike the balance of creating a language that upholds the dignity yeah. of other people um, while not policing, yeah. necessarily? I, it, it's a great question. I think probably the answer is we're not going to craft a language. Um, something I'm, look, when you look over the last 10 or 20 years, it's really tempting to say, boy, these subcultures exist in the United States. And if anything, they're being driven to even greater polarization and greater mm -hmm. right differences from one another. And I know liberals who look at, like, think everyone to the right of, I don't know, George W. Bush is, uh, is QAnon, and everyone on the right thinks that everyone on the left is whatever, you know, international socialists. And it's very tempting to say, boy, how can you continue as a society like that? I'm not sure there has ever been a society that isn't like that in retrospect. I'm not sure that there has ever been a period of United States history where we do not have subcultures with dramatically different values and languages from one another. And the goal of classical liberalism, this political formula for governance, is not how to make us all love each other. Its goal is much more modest than that. The classical liberalism to which I generally adhere is how do we coexist as communities without killing each other. And I know that's a really low bar, but trust me, you want to take that over the alternative of killing each other or trying to on a regular basis. And so I, I don't know that we're going to have a language and we maybe should stop trying to have a language. And I'm going to call things what I call them. You call them what you call them. We each run for office. And in Congress, we have to vote on legislation. And that's kind of it. And if we can pull that off for a few more generations without beating each other's heads in, Counter blessings. Okay. Can, yeah. I, can I insert a comment yes. for you to use at will? Um, this po uh, podcast, I'm sure you know, had a prior life in DC. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if some listeners from the first version of Bipartisan end up listening to the second. And just to put it in context, and I'm really glad to see it revived. I'm really glad to see it in your hands. Mm -hmm. I'm really glad to see it on our campus. Um, it's really neat to see it get another life. The, the spirit of it and the name of it uh, deserve uh, more lifetimes. I think so too. And we recognize in our introduction that you are the president of the Blue Ridge Center, and that is an effort to bring di diverse viewpoints and perspectives into conversation with one another. Right. Do you want to explain any further what the mission is? So um, UVA is a wonderful place. It is one of the great places on earth, um, and I want to only make it better. I Every student at this university would benefit from an even, even wider range of voices on any number of big, important topics. Um, one person, even with a budget and some other people working for him, can't hope to do everything. But we are technically we're in a, a nonprofit, independent of the university, but active across it. With our target being 100% students at the University of Virginia, 
and it's to bring um, expand the range of voices on topics of law, topics of economics and business, topics of faith, of foreign policy, of engineering and society, topics of urban planning and education policy, and um, possibly next semester nursing and other things. It is, um, I mean, again, it's policy issues. I'm not going to be like teaching how to intubate people. That's uh, <laughs> We leave all things like that to the experts. but. To the extent we all want to have larger conversations that involve values, that involves um, judgment calls about public policy issues, those are things on which I think to have a healthy diversity of mainstream viewpoints only enhances the process and our intellectual, the quality of our thinking. And that's true of liberals, conservatives, progressives, centrists, everybody. And so um, a lot of what we do are individual speakers with viewpoints that we think are very underrepresented. Um, and a lot of what we do are panels and debates and um, bringing together multiple voices. Our, one of our most recent events, for example, was two views on religious liberty in American law and American Supreme Court decisions with two very opposed figures, one from UVA Law School, one from a major um, public interest law firm. And they were, I mean, it got a little testy at times, mm -hmm. and I'm glad. So lots more. Awesome. Um, so we really want to ask one final question on a lighthearted note. Um, in like a minute or two, what do you think of Sign Guy? Flush, do you know who he is? Uh, I, it, this is, what do what the signs remind me that he, he's holding up? So it, it's the older gentleman yes. on the corner who yeah. holds up signs, for instance, that say leftist professors suck or puts on a mask of uh, Joe Biden. Yeah. Um, what do you think of him? Uh, go, Brandon. Um, I've never, to my knowledge, seen him, which is weird considering I'm yeah. on the corner with a certain frequency. Um, like I came here right now and he wasn't outside, to my knowledge. Um, look, I'm not trying to put him down. I don't know anything about him. I really don't. And so I'm not necessarily including him in what I'm about to say. But I do know that life produces cranks, people who just, without really reading the room or listening carefully to others, just feel the need to mouth off on all kinds of topics. And in my lifetime, I've seen them being, you know, doing it for Christ. I've seen them doing it to demand we leave the United Nations. I've seen them doing it to support, you know, women's rights and the unborn and opposed wars. I've seen them doing it, urging the U.S. to, I don't know, unilaterally disarm nuclear and its nuclear weapons. I've seen, I don't know, I just guess. Well, I don't, I've seen it all. I don't think we should necessarily, I, I think there are certain things like that that are just so unrepresentative of everything else except their own personal story that I guess I don't think anything of it. Yeah. That's a good answer. That's great. He's definitely an icon among yeah. the UVA community. Yeah, fair enough. Um, He's actually our next podcast guest. That's why we asked. Is that true? No. <laughs> Can you imagine what would happen? Yeah. If we could pull some strings, maybe. Yeah. Pretty elusive guy. Hunter, who we talked to. You might have to do a sort of man on the street interview for that one rather than bring him into the office. We might. Yeah, maybe so. <laughs> well, yeah, that's all we had today. Um, okay. Thank you for, so much for joining us. Thank you um, for doing this. I know it's a lot of work. Yeah, it was awesome. Thank you. You're not getting the big bucks for this, are you? Maybe uh -huh. one day. Maybe one day. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. All right. Good. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Bipartisan Podcast. We'll be reflecting upon our lovely conversation with Professor Gerard Alexander. Kristen and I have developed the power to teleport instantly, as you can see for our <laughs> visual audience. Um, I'm now over here, so don't ask me my power. It's a secret. Um, furthermore, Kristen, do you want to get the discussion started? Yeah, I think it was a great conversation. Uh, Professor Alexander had a lot to say. Uh, one thing we didn't get to respond to in full, I think, is the really legitimate counter-argument that I think many students 
have expressed here, which is that when a speaker comes and denies the human dignity of a whole group of people, that there should be robust opposition to that and protest. And I, I would have liked to hear whether or not he'd encourage that, whether he'd encourage other tactics like boycotting the speaker, which I, I presume he'd be against, but I know that was one thing that students were doing, purchasing tickets and then not showing up. Um, so you'd have a ton of empty seats. But I think it's really important to have a serious protest presence or to vocally oppose um, speakers that you disagree with. But I do believe that student groups should be permitted to invite whomever they think um, would share, as long as it's not hate speech. And I do think the definition of hate speech is important to consider um, and not to be taken for granted. There's a difference between hate speech and you know, speech that we disagree with. Um, but yeah, I think protesting and listening and then protesting makes sense too. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really good point. And furthermore, I think we can sort of apply that to the current events on grounds. Um, for those who are unaware, recently UVA hosted a speaker, Abigail Schreier. Um, in short, her stance is against allowing younger aged children decide on their gender status, more or less. Um, and she spoke at UVA and essentially what happened was there was large protests. Mm -hmm. One of our lovely researchers um, was able to attend her speech. Um, and I think one of the big discrepancies and one of the points I wanted to talk to you about, Kristen, is you said you have a big stance for having protesters talk against things they don't like. Mm -hmm. um, one note our researcher made when she attended the event is that almost none of the protesters actually listened to Abigail Schreier's speech. Do you think that's something that is important, necessary, or is it okay to protest and thus refuse, or not refuse, but decide not to listen to the speaker at hand? I think if protesters are educated about what the perspective of the speaker is, like Abigail Schreier had written a book, people were familiar with the content of the book and what her overall message was gonna be. I think the messaging was pretty clear um, in promotion for the event. If you don't know, and maybe you know who the individual is, you're not sure what the topic they're gonna be addressing is, um, and you're just totally opposed, not willing to listen. Personally, I, I would completely understand if I, I, I would understand having a problem with someone who denies the dignity of transgender people. And um, so I'm not gonna make a judgment about that personally. Like when Mike Pence came to speak, I thought, I know who this guy is. Um, I know what he represents and stands for, but I wouldn't deem it hate speech that I have no tolerance for. Um, so I think it's very much so a personal decision. I think often it's best to go and listen unless you know that the content is either truly hateful or, um, yeah, I think people have real reason to, to reject that entirely and not attend and protest. And I think that's their right. Mm -hmm. And I think that point you made draws back to one of the essential points Professor Alexander brought up of this idea that it's such a commonality in the United States political scene right now to see the other party as so wrong that there must be something wrong with their character. Um, 
And it, it's sort of this argument that we face now, whether we can deem that if somebody is against some form of transgender rights, are they, must there be something wrong with their character? Or do we enter the argument giving them the benefit of the doubt and listening to hear what they have to say? I personally do not have a side to pick on that, but I think that's very interesting, this, uh, that opinion that you brought up, mm-hmm. because Professor Alexander so like strongly in, entered that in his analysis, which shows it's very prevalent in our day-to-day culture that, especially with a lot of issues like surrounding people's rights and their decisions, that there's a tendency to instantly declare it a like humanitarian issue and see that there's no nuance. And I wonder, I, I personally believe that no matter how strongly you go into an argument with that position, it could be a good idea to listen to the speaker just because you never know where nuance can come in. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Abigail Schreier has a very strong stance, so she may be an outlier in this argument, but with a lot of similar cases, I do strongly believe that even if you were like vehemently against an opinion, it could be a great idea to listen because you never know where somebody's perspective could be more similar to yours than you think. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think it's much easier to be intellectually curious about another viewpoint if you don't really have a stake in the conversation or if you know your identity isn't the one being called into question. Um, that would be really, there's a real human experience of, of shame. And I, I mean, I would react really poorly if we had, you know, a sexist speaker come in and, and say that the existence of women in political offices or, you know, being barred from, from positions just on the basis of there being a woman, um, I would have a real problem with that. And so I get it. I think we have to be empathetic, but at the same time promote diversity of, of viewpoints. And when it's simply intellectual, I think it's it's much easier to get behind. But we, when we get to these really difficult questions of, you know, are they outwardly denying my human dignity? That's another question. Yeah, so. I completely agree. And I know you and I could probably go on forever about yeah. this argument. We are at time um, to our audience. Thank you all for listening to the first episode of Bipartisan. Please tell your friends, tell about us, talk about how cool we are, how interesting, how nuanced. Um, we really appreciate everybody tuning in, and we hope everybody has a great day. Thank you. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your Hush country. Up, boy. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Boom! These explosions of bullshit. You're gonna be the next president of the United States. <laughs>